Hi guys, it's Adam from Samson's Hair Care here. I wanted to let you know that when you use the code BLUEGRASS on our website, samsonshaircare.com, BLUEGRASS will save you 10% and go to support this wonderful podcast, The Walls of Time, sharing the history and stories of bluegrass. Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. For over three decades, Larry Stevenson has been a band leader, recording artist, and leader in bluegrass music. Prior to launching his solo career, Larry worked with some important figures in the genre, including Bill Harrell and the trailblazing band The Bluegrass Cardinals. Over the last 30 years, a who's who of world-class musicians have been members of the Larry Stevenson Band. Daniel sits down with Larry in Nashville, Tennessee at the annual convention for the Society for the Preservation of Bluegrass Music in America to talk about his journey in pursuit of originality and authenticity as he continues to be a celebrated mandolin player and singer in bluegrass. Larry, tell me about uh, how your life changed when you heard the sound that set your soul on fire. Oh, my goodness. This guy, I was about 11 years old and uh, living in King George County, Virginia, where I grew up. And there was a guy over in Fredericksburg, Virginia, that was promoting shows in the late 60s into the 70s. And my dad and I would play these shows. I was just swatting on a mandolin and singing at the top of my lungs and you know, as a 10, 11-year-old kid, and we were over at his house one Saturday morning, and I'll never forget it. He said, come here, I got something you need to listen to, and you need to start singing it. And he dropped that needle on that deck of 45 of Rocky Top on a Saturday morning. I, I What in the world was that? Because I'd been listening to Jim and Jesse and Mac Wiseman and Roy Acuff and had some Bill Monroe records, but I at that time I'd never hadn't gotten to the Osborne Brothers yet. And, man, it just... I went out, we had a great record store there in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and I went and bought everything I could get from them, and it just, it, it just changed my life. What about the Osborne Brothers and their music and Bobby singing, and then just the whole, the whole ball of wax just turned your world upside down? What do you think it was about their music? It particular? was everything. It was the energy. It was the type of songs they were doing. Uh, and, of course, at the time, I didn't really understand the harmonies. Uh, but but as time went on, the harmony, what they were doing, and uh, learned what a high lead was later on, and and how that all worked, and um, and just the energy and the those endings, <laughs> the chords, all the my daddy would call them all those off chords they were putting in everything, you know, and and it and as a ten eleven year old kid, it was just it was unbelievable. When uh, you've grown up listening to more straight-ahead traditional bluegrass, and then you hear, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> it's like and bluegrass rock and roll. And, and yeah. the only thing I can equate it to is, you know, these a lot of the kids discovering, you know, Ricky Skaggs or Allison Krauss later. It's You know, it's a little bit more progressive, modern-sounding to them, you know, later in years. Yeah. And and that's I, maybe that's what it was that, that tweaked my ear. You know, there wasn't anything wrong with Jim and Jesse. Oh, yeah. I mean, sweet little Miss Blue Eyes, and she left me standing on the mountain. Somebody loves you, darling. That's as good as it gets, but yeah. it's so different. So different. And, and so good, and it's still good. Yeah. Oh, what are some elements of the Osmond Brothers music that you have tried to apply in your role as a band leader when you've had the Larry Stevenson band the past few decades? I don't really know that I have. Now, people may argue with me on that. You know, oh, you sound like him and you're doing this and you're doing that. I've done a few of their songs over the years, but but I really haven't. I've tried to shy away from that a little bit. And yeah, you know, I've got the high voice and everything, but uh, you know, God gave me that and there's nothing I can do. And I'm, and I'm proud of that fact, you know, but... Uh, but um, I, I really, I can't say that I've really said I'm going to do this like they did it, yeah, because it can't be done. There's nobody, you know? I, so almost in the way that they tried not to sound like anybody else, right. that that is one element that you have brought into having your band have a very distinct sound. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I certainly hope so. I, early on, I was doing a few of their things, and I thought, and we even did some on shows that I never recorded, and I thought, ah, you know, I'm, I need to stay away from this and try to find my own material. And, and yeah, you know, it may have an Osborne flavor to it, 
but uh, but yet I'm not going to try to do their material because it's been done big yeah. time. You've had your own band for the past uh, 30 years, but uh, your pedigree in bluegrass goes back way yeah. before that, working with some of the greats. Um, I know that you spent a lot of time with Bill Harrell, which yep. is a name that a, a lot of uh, the current generation of pickers may not be as familiar with as they should. How did you get the job with Bill Harrell? Um, I graduated high school in King George County, Virginia in 1976, and I immediately got involved in the Washington, D.C. bluegrass music scene, which at the time was huge. Very, uh, the country gentleman, the seldom seen, and a lot, Cliff Waldron, Bill Emerson, the country current band, the Navy band was going, and uh, I got involved in that scene up there, and I went to work with Cliff Waldron. Yeah, he had come out of retirement, and he had a band. He called him Cliff Waldron in the Gospel Way, and we did all gospel music. I cut a gospel album with him on Rebel. Wow. And um, and then he, as the year went on, he kind of started doing some of his material, and I'm a huge Cliff Waldron fan, just the best. Such a unique phrasing and such yes. a unique way of singing that's different than not just people today, but even people of his generation. And Cliff was bringing a lot of... Uh, uh, rock and roll, country uh, songs into bluegrass music. That's where I first heard Patches. Yeah, was from Cliff Waldron, and uh, and then I, I was with Cliff for about a year, seventy seven, and in seventy eight I went to work with a guy named Leon Morris. He was a local Washington D.C. guy. We played a lot of clubs and whatnot. And Bill Harrell had a uh, he and Don Reno had split up about that time, and he put the Virginians back together. They were a four piece band, and Bill had a one-day bluegrass festival out in Davisonville, Maryland, right outside of Annapolis where he lived, and he had Leon booked on it. And we played out there that day, and, and I saw that Bill had a four-piece band. This was in September of uh, 78, and I just went up and told him, if you ever need a mandolin player, tenor singer, because he had a banjo player that was struggling singing the tenor. And I said, man, I'd love to love to work with you. And he hired me. On the spot? Not on the spot. We talked, and he hired me to do a record with him on Rebel called I Can Hear Virginia Calling Me. And then that led to me working with him and started working with him in January of 1979. One of the best gigs I've ever had in my life. Wonderful. For folks that may not be familiar with uh, with Bill Harrell, what, what are some things that made him really unique? He was an entertainer. He was a singer. He was fun. He was a good rhythm guitar player. He was a good songwriter. Um, he, uh, he had the experience at the time. He was also known, and my dad and I knew this, he was quite the drinker back in the day when he and Reno and Smiley were together, Reno and uh, Harold were together. They, they, they were notorious for their partying and, but he had quit drinking at this time and he was all business and he kept us busy. Uh, Ed Ferris, Daryl Sanders, Carl Nelson, great bunch of guys. And I stayed right there with him for four and a half years. It was wonderful. Just a just a great guy. He made us. We were one of his family. I used to go up and stay at his house all the time. And uh, and it was my first really getting out professional gig in the you know early eighties. And uh, we were everywhere, and it was just so much fun. I was still living at home with mom and daddy, and I wasn't married yet. And it was just it was just a wonderful time. With that being your your first gig, where you you know really traveled away from home playing music, what were some of the most eye opening experiences, or some of the most unique things that you learned uh, in those first four and a half years? I learned I learned with Bill on how to work a record table and treat your fans, and just how to treat people in general. He uh, people loved him, and uh, and he knew how to treat people, and he he knew how to work an audience. And uh, it was just, everything was just fun about it. They were old pros, him and Ed, Ed Ferris and the great bass player and Carl Nelson, the fiddle player. And, and then he had two 20-somethings, you know, with me and Daryl Sanders. And I, I just remember just kind of hanging on and listening and, and, and paying attention. And, and I really wanted to be there, and it was just a wonderful time. I'm sure a guy like Bill that had seen so much up to that point, um, and Ed as well, I'm sure they had some uh, really interesting tales to tell. Do you have any? Do you remember any particular stories or, uh, or that they may have told from uh, from the back in the day? Not that I can recall. Uh, Ed Ferris had a lot of good stories. He used to talk about going to Ralph Stanley's festival down at that bottom of that hill over there at that old stage. And Ed was a a, a big fella. 
and and he would uh, he would make his way down that hill and stay there all day <laughs> you know stuff like that yeah, you know yeah. and i never experienced that stage in that hill i've played on the newer one over the years but uh just things like that and the people they knew uh ed uh bill harrell knew george jones pretty well really george jones used to call him bill harrell <laughs> harrell <laughs> 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 and bill hated that you know it's just harrell you know and and i got to meet george jones um over here in nashville one time and i walked up to him and i said i used to play with bill harrell and he went he, he lit up he said i love bill harrell singing <laughs> That's and, awesome. and me and george jones standing there talking about bill harrell you know <laughs> so you know he was a bill was a, quite the guy man he uh washington dc you know that part of the country up there he was and he needs to be in the bluegrass hall of fame i agree big time yeah. there's people in the bluegrass hall of fame with ibma that bill wrote checks to yeah <laughs> Yeah, and Bill's not in there yet. Yeah, and uh, I'm, so I'm doing the best I can to work on that. <laughs> that's a that's something that needs to get amended. I it agree. really does. I agree. Really, really does. He was a great guy, just the best. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. After you worked uh, with Bill Harrell for a while, is, did you go from Bill Harrell and the Virginians to the Bluegrass Cardinals? I did. I did. We played a show in May of, um, I think, 1983 in Moorfield, West Virginia. The Cardinals were there. I was there with Bill Harrell, and Don and David approached me that day about working with them. How long have the Cardinals been going up to this point, do you recall? That was in 83. They started in 76 when they were in California. They moved out east in about 77, 78 to the D.C. area. So they'd been together, you know, what, six years or so, six, seven years. And um, and I, I first told them, no, I'm not going to do this. And I and Bill Bill knew what was going on, and I told him, but I ended up doing it. I went to work with him that June. It was just time for a change. And and I loved their music. I was a fan. They they hit the uh, the Cardinals. They hit the scene hard back in those days. They moved to the Washington D.C. area, and they were. Uh, it was a it was like an overnight success story for those guys, you know, and they yeah. and they're great singers and and good guys and and it was a style of again it was that style of music and singing that I really enjoyed that I really wasn't doing with Bill Harrell was Bill Harrell was more of a ballad singer do a lot of duets great learning ground and all that but uh, it was a good change and it was a different audience I learned it about I learned about different audiences from Bill Harrell to the Bluegrass Cardinals what what was different about the audiences and the fans from working with Bill Harrell to working with the Cardinals maybe a little younger Longer, younger audiences, uh, different styles of festivals, maybe some of the more high-end or more, uh, not high-end, but um, where they were playing festival-wise. And we did a lot of flying. We were all over the place. That's where I worked the Grand Ole Opry for the first time was with the Cardinals, uh, a lot of the Nashville Network TV shows and different things. So they had a they had their booking agent was in Nashville, so we were in Nashville a lot. Was Lance Leroy Lance doing Leroy. their booking? Lance Leroy. Mm-hmm. And um, I had met Lance back in the seventies when my dad and I were playing together. So I got reacquainted with Lance, and it was just different. And but it was, I I I kind of compared the Bluegrass Cardinals to kind of like the Daily and Vincent of our time. Yeah, they had it going on. They they really did. They yeah. were without question one of the most influential bands of yes. the nineteen eighties. What were some things that made their music so different and made them really just uh, be the right band at the right time for a lot of folks? 
I probably didn't maybe notice it at the time, but it was probably David Parmley singing, maybe. And their material, a great material, great singing, quartets, a lot of gospel music. Uh, they kind of had the whole ball of wax, and um, and they had a good booking agent, and uh, and it was it was good. It was a good move. And I'm glad I did that. You uh, you mentioned Lance Leroy. Yeah. And, you know, you said you became acquainted with him early, you know, worked for a band that was on his roster at that time. What what made Lance Leroy of the Bluegrass Hall of Fame such a driving force behind the scenes in this business for so long? I think he might have been one of the first Bluegrass booking agents. Probably, the Lancer yeah. agent yeah. agency. He had the Bluegrass Cardinals. Um, before that, he managed Lester Flat. He was... Um, he was in the lawyer's room the day Flat and Scruggs broke up. And, boy, we've tried to proc those stories out of him, but he wouldn't say a word about it, you know. And he was just uh, he was an old fiddle, old fiddle player from Georgia. He came up here and got acquainted with the Grand Ole Opry in the 60s um, and managed Lester Flat. And um, people loved Lance. And he was a real businessman. And um, then he took on the Bluegrass Cardinals in the late 70s. And uh, managed and, and uh, booked them, and uh, and one of the first to do that. I know there was a lot of dates we worked because of Lance. That's how much people thought of him. It's it's hard to fathom now, but there was a time where um, there weren't as many strictly behind the scenes business people right. in this in this music like there is now. Now there's tons of agencies, pub, um, booking agents, publicists, managers. Mm-hmm. But Lance really helped pioneer that field um, to where we had to have we had a need for people that knew how to do business. Mm-hmm. Lance filled that role. He big really time. did. Yes, he did. He was a, he was a jewel. I, I still miss him. Yeah, yeah, the best. You mentioned uh, the excitement of playing with the Cardinals and flying and playing all sorts of different events. The Nashville Network. What what were some other very unique experiences or that you had with the Cardinals? Well, just getting to record with them. They were on Sugar Hill Records when I went to work with them. We did two records for them. Um, like I said, the venues we played, the, the first time I played the Grand Ole Opry. Um, in 1984, I the word I got at the time, we were very, very close to being members of the Grand Ole Opry. Really? And the Whites got it. Wow. Instead of the Bluegrass Cardinals. And uh, so there was things like that, and it was just exciting. It was just, uh, and you know, maybe at the time I didn't really see it because all I all I wanted to do was play music, you know. And I was just happy to be there. I was still single and and having a great time, and and uh, and and you know, looking back on it, man, they were they had it going on, you know. And I was really happy to be a part of it. You mentioned David singing and the the harmonies they had, the the unique songs. Um, how do you think they were able to have such a modern sound while still being very fairly traditional in their in their music, even though they were forward thinking? Probably the material they did, I would think a lot of it, and um, and their style of singing, and having somebody like David who you know, would take a Merle Haggard song and make a bluegrass song out of it. And it sounded like bluegrass. It didn't sound like anything else. You know, Ramblin' Fever came from the Bluegrass Cardinals. Now you hear everybody doing Ramblin' Fever. Probably a lot of people didn't know that that's where, where the Cardinals first did The bluegrass it. version, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it sounds like a bluegrass song, you know. What about uh, David and Don were such a unique forces in this business. What were things that made them such unique characters in bluegrass? Maybe just being father and son. That's something you don't see a whole lot of. And, uh, you know, Don had um, had quite a history with the banjo. He, when he, He's from Kentucky. He had played with Hilo Brown at one time, moved to California, did the background music on the Beverly Hillbillies, and started the band out there in California, moved to Virginia. They, they picked up roots and came to Virginia where the music was, you know, the East Coast, and, uh, and just continued to record for CMH Records and later Sugar Hill and just making great music and great material and um and you know there wasn't a lot of bands back then that were doing that you know I I think the country gentlemen um I'm you know the seldom seen started but um but they were they were uh, modern but yet they were still traditional yeah you know what I'm saying? Which is a it's a very unique spot to occupy. Yeah, that there's only a handful of bands that have 
Yeah. Really nailed straddling that line. Yeah, exactly. They were great. Um, and uh, I still talk to David quite often. Uh, yeah, he's a good guy, good friend. Yeah. How long were you with the Cardinals? Five and a half years. Five and a half years. I spent a total of ten years with Bill Harrell and the Virginians and the Cardinals in the, in the 80s. When did you know it was time for you to leave the Cardinals and, and start the Larry Stevenson Band? Well, it just – I don't know that I – I'm smart enough to plan anything like that. It just kind of happened. And I was offered several jobs over the years, several times with a country gentleman. I got word through a, a mutual friend of all of ours, Sid Campbell, one time that J.D. Crow was interested. But, I, you know, I, that, that didn't happen. The Pinnacle Boys in Knoxville, Tennessee, and different things. And I had put out a, two solo records by the time I had left the Cardinals which there wasn't a whole lot of solo records being put out in those days. Were, were those the ones on Webco? Uh, the first one was on the Outlet record label called Sweet Sunny South, which is the Webco Classics now. Okay, okay. And uh, the second one was Every Time I Sing a Love Song. That is still in print. It's got I See God on it. Yes, I See God. I should have called Restless Boo, I'd Love Her. And I was getting a few calls to work some dates, but I didn't do it because, you know, I was still with the Cardinals and... and um, and then that kind of ended, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, now would be a good time. And so I gathered up three North Carolina boys, and, and off we were running. So, <laughs> Going from, you know, working for Bill Harrell and being part of the Cardinals to it all being all on you as the band leader, what were some of the biggest challenges in, in that transition? Just getting used to that position um, with your name out front and uh, – I was no longer one of the guys. I was the so-called boss, you know. And it, it took me a while to, to grasp all that because I didn't really want to be the boss. I wanted to be still be one of the guys, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, Raymond Fairchild told me one time, he said, I'm proud of you for stepping out and doing what you're doing. And he said, you got your name out front now. He said, things are different. And he was right. I can't tell you everything else he told me, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, Raymond's another one of those unique characters. Oh yeah. yeah, he was great. But he did. He told me that he said, "I'm in Kissimmee, Florida, in March of 1979. Just put the band uh, together." And he said, "I'm really proud of you for doing this." He said, "You sound good, and uh, but your name's out front, and things are going to be different." And he was right. And um, again, I was single and. Uh, no kids and and it just and I love the music I just I just wanted to play music that's all I've ever wanted to do I never really made it about the money I was working at a music store in Virginia and and it just all kind of fell into place and I just kind of hung in there and kept it going you know and uh, 30 years later it's crazy if there's any advice that you've learned now, 30 years later, that you could have given yourself 30 years ago when you were starting the band, what would it have been? Good question. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Chew on that one a little I'd bit. I'd have to chew on that a little bit. I, I, I don't know that I would change anything. I just did an interview with somebody else, and I really mean this. I don't I don't have any regrets. I don't know that I would change anything possibly would have taken that job with the country gentleman the last time they offered it possibly maybe should have done that but yet i'm i'm not it's okay and um and i don't think i would have changed anything it, it all i think i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing and uh and i look back on the little odd and weird and the way things laid out the way things happened even moving to nashville I didn't move down here for the music. I moved here for other reasons. And uh, it's just, it was just, it all kind of fell into place. And I think it was all meant to be. And I, I don't think I'd change anything. I was told to make it my own, you know, that I did my own singing. I had several, several uh, prominent guys tell me, you know, be yourself and make it your own. Don't do any partnerships. Don't do any band things. Just keep it yourself, you know, and. And I did that. Why do you so, think that's important? I think the partnership things, the, the people that told me that, they had problems with it. You know, you got different ideas and run into problems with 
you know, having partnerships and doing things like that. And it, it just said, keep it, keep it. If you can keep it your, your own, just do it that way. You're not going to break up with yourself. Right. So it makes it a lot, right. lot less right. uh, tumultuous. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, what are some uh, ways that uh, you have made the Larry Stevenson band sound so unique over the past three decades? Oh, I don't know. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have a sound all your own. Well, uh, maybe it goes back to what I was told, you know, make it my own. And, 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 uh, and I, you know, I'm, I know I'm not the best mandolin player and the best singer out there. But, uh, but uh, you know, I think the material we've done, I think um, going back to the old Bill Harrell ways of doing things, just trying to be good to people, returning phone calls. It's funny how I'll hear that every now and then. Thank you for returning my phone call from a promoter. I'm like, you mean bands don't do that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and they will yeah. tell you, yeah, they won't, yeah. you know, or a booking agent or something. And I've always done my own booking, and, and I've always done everything. Done it all. What are some of the pros and cons to doing it all yourself, both as a band leader but also behind the scenes as well? Well, it gets a little overwhelming at times. Because you, now, you, now not only you're on your booking agent, but you also do your own label – so we have done you wear that. a lot. You wear a lot of hats. I do. Uh, the bus, driving the bus, taking care of the bus, ordering product, uh, booking. Uh, we've got a record label now. I say we, my wife and I. And um, but you know, I'm okay with it. I don't have a problem uh, working hard and getting it done. And that's what I've always done. I've never had anybody come up to, to me and say, "I want to book you. I want to manage you." I want to do this. I want to do that. I've never had that happen, and I've had two so-called booking agents in the thirty years, and it just not did not go well. And I hear the stories about other bands that have gone through that, so I just continue to do it myself, and I don't have a problem with doing it. It does get a little overwhelming at times. It gets crazy at our house because my wife is self-employed too. It gets a little nuts, but uh, but it's okay. I know where every penny's at, yeah, that, and I know where every penny's going. You know. And in the, maybe in the bottom line, that's what it's all about, you know. So it's all good. What are ways that, you know, over 30 years um, that going through band member changes, you've still been able to maintain the same sound while still growing as a band as well? We There's some bands that will have a history that long, and with band changes they may sound completely different and by the time you get 30 years later it doesn't even sound like the same band you've maintained that that consistency in that larry stevenson band sound while still growing and not trying to find people that fit molds of past members how do you do that well i think the, the um, hopefully the longevity of me doing what i've done and especially in the last 10 years or so the people that have come into the band know this is what it's going to be like especially the guys i've got now the guys that i've got now knew my songs from 30 years ago that I had to relearn. That's got to be exciting for you. And it was. The first day we rehearsed with them, they said, let's do Timber, I'm Falling in Love. And I'm like, I haven't sung that thing in 25 years. <laughs> and we just re-recorded it. So um, they, I guess I, because I've been out here so long and I do what I do and they've heard the records and, and you know, if they know anything about the music, they know who I am. And uh, and there's a little bit of a respect factor there that it's taken probably 25 to 30 years to gain, you know. <laughs> that's got to be encouraging, and that's got to push you to have oh. guys, you know, oh, yeah. that weren't even born when you formed the band coming in oh, yeah. and pulling out songs that you maybe forgot about. It was know? crazy, and uh, and it, it energizes me, and, uh, you know, and, and I'm enjoying it as much right now as I ever have. These guys are great, and uh, Derek Vaden, Nick Dauphiné, Matt Wright, great guys and great singers, and um, and it's yeah, it it kicks my butt a little bit and gets me in there with them, you know. It's it's all good. You you've had such a knack for identifying young talent. So many of today's top pickers uh, really got their first big break <laughs> working with Larry Stevenson Band. What are things that you look for when you look for people to be in your band? Well. Most of the time when somebody comes to audition, when they walk through the door, I can usually tell if I want them in my band or not. How do you size them up? Just What, just what are their, do's and don'ts? Their body language <laughs> really? and, and just the way they look. Not that, not that I have any problem with the way people look, but 
their mannerisms. Um, the way you present yourself. And yeah. The way you present yourself. It's no different than going out, you know, uh, uh, going for to, uh, uh, an audition for a job somewhere. Audition is yeah. not the right uh, word. A job interview. A job yeah. interview yeah. for, a, you know, at a bank or anywhere else. And it's that first impression. And usually the people that walk through that door, I already know a lot about them. Yeah. Because I've talked to people. I can talk to your dad. I can talk to, you know, hey, what's the deal with this guy? That's you one know? thing that is important that is doing your homework yeah. does yeah. help a lot. Yeah, yeah. And and a lot of them I've heard play and sing, and I know who they are. And some of them will, like the guy I've got playing guitar with me right now, he's walked up to me four or five times over the last seven, eight years and said, man, I love your music. I grew up listening to your music, which is just weird. And, <laughs> and, and I, you know, maybe we get to play together someday. And we did. So, you know, I've, I've gotten really lucky and blessed in that respect. And, um, and yeah, they're young, but I'm okay with that. If they want the gig, they'll work and, and make, it, make it happen, you know. I've had a few that didn't work out, but, you know, you find somebody else and you move on, you know. It's just... You, you talk about how you can usually tell as soon as they walk through the door. Yeah. Yeah, what, what are some things that are, you know, you as a band leader are automatic turnoffs as someone walk, walks through the door to be a member of Larry Stevenson Band. Just uh, maybe a little cocky attitude. You know, you can just kind of tell. You know, they come in and start name dropping and and all the things they've done, and they're 22 years old, you know. I mean, <laughs> come on, dude. And you You've know, got shoes older than uh, them, You know, right? Kenny, Kenny Ingram played banjo with me for 10 years, so here's me and Kenny Ingram sitting there, and this guy walks through the door, and he's 22 years old dropping names and – and it's not impressive, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and and it's just it's it's kind of funny, yeah. And yet, but you get the guitar out, and then they don't really. Well, I've heard that song of yours. Now tell me how it goes. No, I'm not going to tell you how it goes. You know, what do you know? Well, I haven't had a chance to listen to anything yet. Well, what are you doing here? You know. You you <laughs> did your homework on the potential member. They right. should have done their homework exactly. on, on your music yeah. for the audition. Well, I thought we were just going to pick and jam today. No, uh, we didn't all get together on a Tuesday afternoon just to pick and jam. That's not what this is about. We'll pick and jam later if you get the gig. You know, it's, it's just things like that, you know. And and they they get the hint pretty quick. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, Kenny Ingram. Uh, working with you yeah. for for ten years, that had to be a real treat. It was unbelievable how that all happened, because I can remember back in how the, did all that happen? Yeah. The the famous banjo swap of nineteen eighty nine, eighty nine, no ninety nine, ninety nine. Yeah, uh, Kristen Scott Benson had come back to work with me for the second time, and Aaron McDerris was working with the Graskels. And Kenny Ingram was still with Rhonda Vincent. And the word got out, which is a whole other story for another time, that Kenny Ingram was going to be leaving Rhonda Vincent. Well, everybody, and, and, and that Aaron McDerris was going to be hired from the Graskels to go to work with Rhonda, that word leaked out. Are you with me so far? Yes, sir. And, uh, and so everybody started jumping on the Graskels job, including Kristen. Which I was okay with it. So the next thing I know, Kristen is with the Graskels. Aaron had gone with Rhonda, left me without a banjo player. And I thought I had hired somebody. Well, the phone rings one day, and it's Kenny Ingram. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I don't know, Kenny. I think I've hired somebody. Well, it didn't work out, so I called him back, and 10 years later, he was in the band. I mean, it was so weird. Those three banjo players just switched places right there. And Kenny, I mean, that had to be a real treat for you. Well, it was. And uh, Kenny and I, are, he's five years older than I am, but yet we had a heck of a lot of stuff in common. Lance Leroy, the Lester Flat connection. Um, and I can remember growing up in Virginia, I saw Kenny Ingram with Lester Flat, and, and Kenny made such an impact he wasn't Lester Flatt's first banjo player after Earl Scrubby. He was the second. Haskell McCormick was the first. But Haskell wasn't there long. But I can remember Kenny as a kid. He he made such an impact with Lester Flatt and, and Jimmy Martin. And you would hear people talk about, you know, well, let's go to Watermelon Park in Berryville this weekend. Man, the Osmond brothers and Jimmy Martin and Jim and Jesse are there and Kenny Ingram's playing. They would say Kenny Ingram right along with all the, yeah. the headline acts. Yeah, that's how, that's what an impact he made. Yeah, 
and here he is driving my bus and playing in my band. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of kind of odd. When but, was the first time you met Kenny? Cool, we. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. Um, in early seventies or seventy nine, early eighties, when I was working with Bill Harrell, uh, he was playing at the time with uh, uh, Curly Seckler. Uh, Lester Lester died in seventy nine. Kenny had already left, and then uh, Curly kept the band going, and 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 I was around him quite a bit then with Bill Harrell. So yeah. We worked a lot of dates together, so that would have probably been it. But I knew of him way before that. I oh, saw him yeah. in the 70s, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know that I remember seeing him with Jimmy Martin. He was with Jimmy twice. Yeah. Probably did, but I remember him with Lester Flat. you know, just towering, him and Marty Stewart, you know, and playing uh, uh, Foggy Mountain Breakdown 900 miles an hour and, and modulating to A chord. Did you ever, you ever hear that? I don't think I've oh, heard that. Oh, that's awesome! One. Look that up. <laughs> I will. Yeah, I will. You know, Marty's taking a mandolin break, and Paul Warren's taking a fiddle break, and Kenny's back there putting his capo on an A, and then they modulate to A, and Kenny just bust it, man. It's just so cool, you know. Yeah, he, he was he's and a great singer, great great singer. He fit what we did quite a while. It was really good having him with us. And he's a uh, he's like you. He's he's a big Oz Brothers fan. As oh, well. I yeah. didn't know that about him either. <laughs> he could play every lick Sonny played. I didn't know that. And him and Sonny were big friends. They'd been friends since the seventies, and uh, he knew everything they played. So at sound checks, that's what we did was Osborne Brothers songs at sound checks. <laughs> Roll Muddy River, and and we got these me and Kenny. We got these. 25-year-olds over here that don't know how to play Roll Muddy River, you know? So we're, we're teaching them all these Osborne Brothers songs at sound checks, you know? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So you've heard us talk about Samson's Hair Care's hair pomade with its all-day hold and signature smell. Now they have something for the other hair on your face, your beard. Fellas, I don't know about you, but I love sporting a beard. It makes me feel so manly, and let's face it, the ladies love it. However, what they don't love is a beard that's unkempt and out of control, and when you're scratching all day like a dog. That's where Samson's Hair Care can help you. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil to help you regain control of your beard. The beard oil is all about stopping irritation. It makes the beard softer and moisturizes the skin underneath so you're not scratching all day. They also have their beard balm, which helps you regain control of your beard, help it lay the way it's supposed to so you don't have them wiry hairs sticking out, and it makes your beard softer as well. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil at samsonshaircare.com, and they know that bluegrassers need to look sharp so that's why if you use code bluegrass you'll save 10 percent off whether you want the beard oil the beard balm the uh, samson's hair care pomade or all three check it out at samsonshaircare.com use code bluegrass to save 10 percent off it's all at samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass what are some of the uh the things that have been most rewarding having uh, had your own band for three decades just everything it's 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 all been rewarding Again, I wouldn't take anything for it. Um, I still love what I do. I st- the, the roads don't bother me. The traveling doesn't bother me. Um, and, you know, and having somebody like Kristen Scott Benson in my band twice, and Kristen and I, we text and we talk occasionally, and, and we see each other, we hug each other, and tell each other we love each other, and, and just um, the, the relationships you know, and having Kenny Ingram, Jason Berry, who's with your dad now, was the first fiddle player I had for a while, you know, and, and, and they're still friends. Jason comes to the house every now and then and helps me work on my bus, you know, and, and I've had two or three people come back twice. So I, f- I feel like I've been pretty good to them, and all that's really rewarding, the relationships and, and, uh, and the camaraderie out here, and it just uh, it's just been the best. And I don't know how long it's going to continue to go, but I hope it continues to go some, a long time. You know, it's 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 times moving on. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it's got to be pretty rewarding as well because you talked about when you were young, starting up, and you had folks like uh, Bill Harrell yeah. and your buddies in the Cardinals uh, to really kind of help teach you and and take time to 
uh, bring you along in this music to now that it's come full circle and you're able to kind of keep that going and, yeah. and pass along what you know to a new batch of 20 something year olds. That's the way it works, isn't yeah. it? In about everything in life in general. It's, yeah, you pass it along to the people coming, coming after you. And that's what Bill Harrell and Don DeParmley did. And, uh, Cliff Waldron, man, when I went to work with Cliff Waldron in 1977, I didn't have a clue about nothing. And I can remember Cliff standing in his living room showing me little licks on the mandolin. Hey, play, try this right here, you know. My daddy played the mandolin, but he wasn't a professional. You know, I was backing the needle up on records trying to figure out, you know, Jimmy Goodrow and Doyle Lawson breaks on Country Gentleman records, you know. And uh, and so, yeah, you just pass that all along. And, and hopefully I've done that to some of them, and they appreciate it. Yeah. And I think you've mentioned before, too, um, Bill Emerson helped you a lot as well, didn't he? Bill, I got a call from Bill one day. I was living in Northern Virginia, and and I love Bill Emerson. That era of the country gentleman is just my favorite. Uh, Bill Emerson, the Doyle Lawson, Bill Yates, Charlie Waller, and uh, and, and Emerson's banjo playing is a style that I really, really always enjoyed. And the phone rang one day, and it was Bill Emerson on the other end of the line. This is in the early '80s, and uh, he knew who I was, and it just, it just blew me away I, I i i had to sit down <laughs> literally i mean that those phone calls do happen yeah. you know and he asked me to sing on the pete goble and bill emerson records the songs that are that are classics right now a blue virginia blue tennessee 1949 well, you uh, can keep your nine pound hammer nine pound yeah. hammer your dad's done some of them the many hills of time pete wrote a third verse for the many hills of time that i had been doing um, all those songs, and uh, and I was just blown away. And it started a relationship that uh, we worked a lot of dates together. As time went on around the D.C. area, he became like a mentor and a, just a great friend. And um, we did a show one time at the Fredericksburg Fair in Fredericksburg, Virginia. It was myself and Mark Newton and Bill Emerson and Bill Yates. That's a pretty stout <laughs> team right there. <laughs> so Mark Newton and I were like, oh, my gosh, you know, we're just like little kids at Christmas. But uh, And then Bill and his son John uh, ended up uh, running Webco Records for a while, like the A&R man, you know, and I recorded for him, and Bill produced and played on one of my records. and uh, the, That had the, to be a thrill, too. Getting yeah, to sing yes. on one of Bill's records is cool, but having him play yes. on one of yours is that's a And Bill was actually my first banjo player. He worked the first date with me in the state of Ohio. Wow. In March of 1979 for Daryl Atkins at the Villa Milano. <laughs> Ronnie Bowman was playing with the Lost and Found that night. <laughs> and Bill Emerson played banjo with me. And then he worked another date that summer that we had booked. And then Rick Allred worked the rest of the dates for the next two or three years. And he was a very encouraging, very um, just man, you can do this, you need to do this, you got the voice, you got the looks, you got the talent, it was everything. It was just so encouraging, sitting at his kitchen table and him telling me all that stuff. And, um, and yeah, he kind of gave me the little kick I needed to really make all this happen, and I owe a lot to Bill Emerson for that. That's one thing that I think is very unique about Bluegrass is because the camaraderie among the artists and the bands is – you know, we're all, it's all for one, well, yeah. one for all type of deal. I don't see that in other genres of music where you have such of this passing of the torch from generation to generation or where you're on the road or working for people that have done this for 30 years. I mean, it, the, the turnover cycle in rock and pop music, for example, yeah. there's not people on the charts right now that were doing this 30 years ago. Right. W- even in country, that's, I mean, Every now and then you'll have a George Strait or an Alan Jackson that kind of breaks the mold on that. Yeah. But the majority of the people on the charts have only been doing this about three years. Here today and gone tomorrow. Exactly. Whereas yeah. in Bluegrass, there is such a longevity yes. factor um, that you do get a lot of that opportunities to be encouraged by your heroes and to work for them and then to see uh, them for you to be that yes. to somebody else. Yes. And uh, and even the the records have a longevity of, of living uh, you know, I've got old CDs and records on my table that, you know, came out 30, 35 years ago that people still requesting songs from, and I still sell them. And, and sometimes they, uh, un, 
a new record will sell an old record and and they just they just keep living in bluegrass music and that's and thanks to guys like you too with these great radio <laughs> stations that play our music and these great markets you guys live in up there so uh but yeah it's 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 a unique business in that in that way what are some other things do you think makes the bluegrass business so unique whether good or bad <laughs> well i think um hanging out at our record tables like we do and shaking and howdying with people people really really like that and that can get a little weird at times but uh for those of us who have buses you know we can we can take off and go to them but i don't i don't normally do that at most festivals Uh, i'm in that bus enough i like hanging out at my record table you know i'll take some breaks and go eat lunch or something and or or just go sit down for a minute but uh but that's that's unique to what we do you don't you don't see that very much and it's and it's always been that way I mean, I, I can remember meeting Bobby Osborne for the first time. It was at a festival in Culpeper, Virginia, at the old American Legion Park. And I was 11 years old, and he was standing right there by that motorhome. And he was so, so nice to me. I'll never forget that. I don't, you know, and, and I don't forget it. And, and little kids, I know who was nice to me being a 10- or 11-year-old kid and who wasn't. Yeah. I remember that, too. Yeah, and some of them are still around today that weren't. That, so. that type of stuff sticks with you, whether it, it good really or bad. Does. Yeah. It really does. And Kristen Scott Benson walked up to me at a in Lawrenceville, Georgia, at a festival. She was 13 years old. And I remember it because she asked me to sing The Many Hills of Time. How many 13-year-old girls walk up? That, that doesn't happen, <laughs> yeah, happen all no, the time. No, yeah. And when she came to work with me at 19, she told me that, and I remembered it. And uh, so, yeah, you, you, and 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 my thank I think my first thing to her was was I nice to you? <laughs> did, yeah. I didn't blow you off, did I? You know, and and I didn't, you know, because and I remember that these these kids are amazing these days, and and you know people walk up and joke now, hey, you got this ten year old here, he'll probably end up in your band one day, you know. <laughs> Where where do you see this music going with the next generation of pickers? Um, Both the people that are of hireable age and and younger. Where where do you see the music going? I have no clue. It's all over the place. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Do do you think that's good or bad? I think for a guy like me, it's probably not so good. Uh, We're losing so many festivals, and the festivals are changing their lineups and what they do, and they're trying to do something that maybe they shouldn't do. Some of the festivals need to go away, maybe. They're kind of stale, which is possible, but but there's still a large bluegrass audience out there, and I think some of them might be forgetting some of them a little bit. And, um, and, and, And I think they need to keep that in mind. And there's still a lot of good bands out here playing really good bluegrass music, and we're not trying to sound like rock and roll bands. We can take a rock and roll band, a rock and roll song or a country song, but we make it sound bluegrass. And there's still a lot of that really good music going on. But for some reason, they seem to be kind of overlooking us a little bit. And I'm not sure I understand why that is. And I'm not saying this in a, uh, in a negative way, but um, there's a lot of different flavors of ice cream. Yes. But vanilla is still the best-selling flavor. Vanilla is pretty good. You know, like, and not not that I'm calling uh, traditional bluegrass vanilla, but when, you know, you can go to an ice cream shop that's got 55 flavors, and it's fun to have a bunch of different flavors of ice cream, but the if you go to an ice cream shop that doesn't have vanilla... Are you really at an ice cream? You know that's yeah. That's it's just something to something to think I, about. There's room for all different I, flavors, but I hear what you you're saying. You don't want to ignore. I hear vanilla. what you're saying. Yeah, and uh, I can remember when the Nashville Network started changing what they were doing a little bit, and my mother sitting up there in Virginia, she couldn't wait for Saturday nights for the Nashville Network to come on. You know, the Statler Brothers show and Crook and Chase and. And, uh, you think Nashville Network, you think Crook and Chase. Yeah, right? and, and uh, the Ralph Emery show. And then all that started changing, and it crushed her. She was such a fan, and when she passed away, we're, my sisters and I are up there going through all of her stuff, which I kind of knew this anyway. She had every Ray Stevens DVD that he ever put out. She was buying all this stuff and spending her money on it and all these things at the TNN, and they just totally went away from all that and ignored that audience. That audience was still there. I, you know, is there some 
kid sitting in a cubicle somewhere in New York making these decisions. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how that works. It's too corporate for me. But there's still a big audience for this. I think I think your daddy proves that at, uh, at Wilmington, Ohio. It's a great festival, great bluegrass festival. And it's, it's uh, you know, yeah, you'll throw something different in every now and then, but it's still it's a great festival, and the people will come out. You give it to them and present it in the right way. And that's a lot of it, too. Yes. Um, there's a, I don't care what music you have on stage, if it's not presented right. in a professional manner. That's right. It's real. So I think there's some events and some festivals and some radio shows and some, right. a lot of things that think that while content does matter and you want good quant- content, good songs, good music, whatever, the style of the content doesn't matter as much as the presentation. Right. And it doesn't matter if a traditional bluegrass festival closes, it might not be because it was traditional bluegrass. It might be because it just wasn't a good festival. It, 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 like you know? I said it a few minutes ago, some of them needed to go away. Yeah. Uh, whether it be the sound system, whether it be the MC, or the lack of those two things, most of the time it was the lack of it, and then the and then the uh, the entertainment they were booking, it just gets a little stale, and uh, uh, yeah, this music to me, I've always said it, if it's presented in the right way, people will come out, they will enjoy it, they may not like me as much as the other band, but they'll get a chance to hear me, you know, and and maybe they will. I don't know how all that works, but um, but yeah, it's it's all the presentation and it still works. That's one thing that um, a phrase that I absolutely loathe. Then I don't care <laughs> if people are talking about a website or an album cover or CD quality or a sound system or an MC or what is well, it's good enough for bluegrass. Oh yeah. Well, if it's not good enough for bluegrass, if it's not good enough for everybody else, then it shouldn't be good enough right. for us and other genres other fans potential fans see that and be like right. well they don't, must not care as much that's and that's right. usually far from the truth but you can't cut corners no and when you look you we talked about lance leroy earlier that's a phrase that i don't think lance ever would have said you know no he, oh no his levels of professionalism were of the same caliber of anybody else in nashville that's right you know his his standards were the same as whoever was booking the statler brothers exactly or whoever right. was booking merle haggard uh Lance conducted business the same way, and we need we need that professionalism in what we do. It's it bluegrass has always kind of been a mom and pop run organization to a to a point. You know what I'm saying? Right down from the radio stations that you you'll scan the dial around and here's some some old boy on the AM station somewhere, and it's it's all good. But yet we need things change, and we need we need to pick it up a little bit and. Hopefully, the help of our organizations have done that, and uh, and like Spigma, where we're at now, and IBMA, and different things, and hopefully, has helped in a lot of that. But uh, but it's still a wonderful music, and there's still a big audience for it. What do you think makes this music and its fans and its people so special and so unique? It's real, really. It's real. There's no smoke and mirrors. Whether the guy's singing off key or whether he can't play the banjo, it's real. He's got a microphone in front of him, and what you hear is what you get, you know. And uh, there's a lot of country musicians I've met over the years that wish that they could play bluegrass music. You know, they get in a country band, they play the same ten notes every night. And uh, we have a chance to stretch out and do our thing. It's it's real. The authenticity is something that makes it yes. so unique, and especially in today's world where – as you mentioned, there's so much smoke and mirrors. Everything right. is so polished or so commercial, right. or not just in music, but in everything. Everything right. is so um, detached right. from reality. Yep. To have a music that's as authentic as as bluegrass, um, it makes now as good a time as any for exactly people right. to jump on board. Oh, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Come on in. The water's fine. <laughs> thank you so much, Larry. I appreciate Daniel, it. Daniel, you're the man. I don't know about that, but thank you. It's three generations of Mullins, man. Your granddaddy, your your daddy, and now you. This is awesome. I appreciate every time I'm around you. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Larry Stevenson, our special guest on this eighth episode of our second season of the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. 
Larry is a real veteran in bluegrass music. He's played with a, a bunch of uh, premier bands over the past several decades and has led his own band, the Larry Stevenson Band, for 30 years and counting. 30 years to me makes you an icon in this music. Um, of course, Larry, very dear to my heart and his legacy as uh, myself, someone who is in love with bluegrass mandolin picking. Uh, he's always been a big inspiration to me. And I'm so glad you were able to sit down with him. Uh, it's so good to hear about his legacy. And we, you know, we forget uh, sometimes because he's been on his own for so long, uh, all these epic uh, uh, moments he's had before he formed his own band playing with Cardinals, playing with Bill Harrell, playing with so many folks that are uh, bluegrass household names and uh, really inspiring to hear him sit down and talk about his career and his life in bluegrass music and a passion he has for it. I thought it was so fun getting to hear some stories about his days working with uh, some bands that maybe some of our, our younger listeners may not be as familiar with. And this could be a great history lesson to learn about folks like Bill Harrell and the Bluegrass Cardinals that put out so many great recordings and were staples of the bluegrass festival scene for decades. That's right. And uh, I'm really enjoying putting together the playlist for this show, too, because I'm going back and digging up some of the old Cardinals music, uh, Larry's music over his uh, career. Uh, you've even uh, been telling me some songs to pick out uh, from Bill Harrell recordings that Larry was on. So I'm going through and just making a really good playlist for everybody to discover a lot of great uh projects that Larry's been a part of. So looking forward to uh, sharing all that with everybody. That's right. I mentioned, uh, yeah, Bill Harrell and the Virginians when Larry was working with Bill, that walking in the early morning do such a great cut. And Larry's tenor really shines on that classic recording. One thing I found, I remember the first time when I heard um, the Cardinals and I'm not all sure who was in the Cardinals at the time of this recording. Daniel, maybe you can help me. There's a, a compilation album. It's actually been called, a couple of different things, but one of the things you can find when you look up on YouTube is Tennessee Mountain Bluegrass Festival, which is a bunch of live mm -hmm. artists, live cuts. Uh, there's a killer, killer, killer darling Corey uh, from the Bluegrass Cards on that uh, compilation. Uh, the main place I've been able to find it is YouTube. We don't do YouTube playlists for the show yet, but uh, that's a great one to look up. Like I say, I'm not sure who else on that recording. Maybe you know, Daniel, who uh, who's in the band at that time. It's probably a I'm going to say it's 70s. It looks like that's back when Randy Graham was a member of the band. But Yeah, it sounds like him singing, yeah. The totally. Cards had such a great legacy in producing such top-tier talent that you know are all household names in bluegrass now. Of course, uh, David and Don Parmalee, Randy Graham was a member for a long time. Larry Stevenson, Don Rigsby worked with the Cardinals. Dale Perry worked with the Cardinals as well. So many primo bluegrass workhorse veterans in this business worked with the Cardinals, and they made some wonderful original recordings. Larry Stevenson, a part of that band for uh, five and a half years before he decided to form his own band, the Larry Stevenson Band. And when you look at a, a who's who of uh, primo bluegrass pickers, so many of them uh, found their way in the ranks of the Larry Stevenson Band at one time or another. Yeah, actually, I'm uh, proud to know some of our uh, Asheville friends over here, Derek Vaden and uh, Nick Dolphinay are currently in Larry's lineup. Uh, two friends of mine, fantastic young men, fantastic players. And I know that uh, guys like that who appreciate the legacy of Larry and uh, keep him on his toes to want him to play, you know, some of the classic songs they remember uh, hearing growing up. So um, yeah, some Asheville connection, some fantastic musicians that are in his band currently. I know they really enjoy being on the road with Larry and uh, we really enjoy hearing Larry's story. Thanks so much. Where, where was this interview recorded? Daniel, can you remind me? We recorded this one uh, backstage at uh, the 2020 Spigma convention in Nashville, Tennessee. I believe that Larry is a member of Spigma's Hall of Greats, and he's a legend in the business. Uh, you mentioned the Larry Stevenson Band, and you think of uh, folks, uh, we talked about Kristen Scott Benson, but Mickey Harris has been a member of that band, Jason Berry, Kenny Ingram, and so many more of the top pickers uh, in bluegrass over the past 30 years have been members of the Larry Stevenson Band. He's made some great recordings, and we're so glad that uh, a lot of those are going to be profiled in our Spotify playlist uh, to accompany this episode. That's right. And like I say, I'm putting that together right now for the episode. You can check that out on Spotify as well as you can check out and follow 
Walls of Time podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, and other great streaming locations. Go to the Walls of Time uh, website, wallsoftimepodcast.com. Check out our official Walls of Time podcast t-shirts. They're golden yellow. They're super soft. And we'd appreciate uh, the support if you'd uh, pick one of those up on our website. Follow us on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Walls of Time podcast on uh, Instagram and Facebook, Walls of Time pod on Twitter. We'd love to connect with you. And what's coming up in the next, actually two episodes, Daniel, tell us about who you've got on the plate there. A two-part interview with the most awarded fiddler in IBMA history and, a, of course, without question, a future Hall of Famer. Mr. Michael Cleveland. He's literally one of the hottest fiddle players of the past few uh, decades in bluegrass music and one of my favorite people in the bluegrass music business. Can't wait for everybody to hear more about Michael's journey. And like you said, it's going to be a two-parter. And check it out in the next coming weeks on Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you enjoy podcasts. We love hearing from you. And we can't wait to be back next week with special guest Michael Cleveland. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.